Hi, this is James Rudd with the Heart Podcast, and today I'm delighted to have an in-depth conversation with Dr. Clive Lewis, who is a consultant cardiologist from Royal Papworth Hospital in the UK, and Clive is an expert on heart transplantation. Clive and I have a good discussion which covers many areas of heart transplantation, including uh, common indications for transplants, some contraindications, and also a look to the future. What's likely to happen over the next five to ten years? What have been the big developments in this field over the last few years? I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Many thanks indeed for joining me, Clive, uh, for this uh, second episode of the podcast all about heart failure. Clive, can we talk about heart transplantation? It's now around 50 years since the first heart transplant. Uh, what's changed in that time? Well, that's a big question. I mean, it's an amazing fact to think that we have been transplanting now for 50 years overall since that first heart transplant by Christian Barnard in Cape Town, South Africa. And indeed, we approach next year uh, 40 years of transplantation in uh, Papworth Hospital here where we are. And indeed, the first successful heart transplant was performed in the UK. In the UK, there was actually an early transplant in the first year, um, the the 49th year, if you like. And uh, that unfortunately resulted in, in, as was very common then, early death, predominantly because of infection. And one of the big changes perhaps is the way that we use immune suppressants differently now. We have a greater range of drugs. I think we understand how to use them better, particularly with regards to minimizing the dose to get the balance right between sufficient medication to prevent rejection, which was certainly an early concern in transplantation. But I think we recognize now that we need to individualize treatment much better so that we can minimize the dosing, minimize the side effects and long-term complications from medication, which actually are the key determinants to long-term survival in many cases. So immune suppression has changed enormously and the very high doses used back then resulted in early infection, which was uh, how a number of the early transplants actually died. And what would you say are the main indications for a heart transplant in 2018? So in the past, more than half of patients would have been ischemic cardiomyopathy. But really, the field of cardiology has changed so much for ischemic disease that a lot of patients now survive their myocardial infarctions. They may survive with heart failure, but the disease is more limited because of the advances in how we intervene on the coronary arteries. So probably we've moved from a situation where 60 or so percent of patients would have come from an ischemic background. Perhaps that's now down to 35 or 40 percent. And then the biggest group now would be the dilated cardiomyopathy group. Of course, within that, we have those patients who may have uh, genetic and, and well understood basis for the cardiomyopathy, although often it's more an idiopathic process. And of course, the dilated phenotype is the end common appearance of heart failure in many other diseases. So it's uh, often not until we've performed transplantation and got a really big sample of muscle to biopsy that we understand the the basis of some of those uh, patients. So that will be the biggest uh, second group. There's an increasing group of patients that we see with specialist kinds of cardiomyopathy. So the arrhythmogenic types, those with restrictive physiology, and of course, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 
although the typical patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that we see is that with a restrictive phenotype rather than the hokum type that uh, most medical students will jump to think is is what we mean by hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, and then there's an increasing group of patients with adult congenital heart disease. I say increasing because, of course, they've survived with palliations into adulthood and the numbers surviving with particularly the more advanced types of, uh, of uh, pediatric disease with the Fontan procedure. And the Fontan operation has resulted in now an increasing number of adults surviving with what is effectively a single ventricle palliation. And uh, the number of patients coming later to transplant is going to increase incredibly from particularly that group. It would have represented only one or two percent of patients 10 or 20 years ago, but now is increasingly four or five percent of patients that we would see for heart transplant assessment in the, in the modern era and increasing. And talking about heart transplant assessments, what are the kind of tests that you do when a patient is referred to you in this tertiary centre? So our approach is very much a multidisciplinary one, and we need to um, really make sure that the patient is the centre of our focus, and through that to investigate them to the best of our ability to understand the timing of any need for transplantation, the severity of the illness, trying to understand the prognosis for the future to help the family and their carers to understand the current position. And unfortunately, in a busy clinical world, we don't always have the opportunity to spend as much time talking to our patients about the, the future. So often I find that we're spending a lot of our time bringing all of this information together to try and allow the family and carer to come to terms with what is a disease with very high mortality. Uh, the basic investigations and the really important ones are right heart catheterization to understand hemodynamics better, to direct therapy, and to understand whether transplantation is safe. Uh, beyond that, of course, echocardiography. And sometimes we pick up unexpected findings, in particular left ventricular thrombus, uh, which requires attention. But we're also paying great attention to the state of the right ventricle. That helps to determine whether transplantation is going to be nearer or further away. But also to understand whether if transplantation isn't going to be an option, whether a patient could be considered for mechanical support with a longer term left ventricular assist device, where we really need good right ventricular function for that device to operate. So right heart catheter and echo. And then we look at a degree of exercise uh, assessment. So we tend to use cardiopulmonary exercise test because there's better validation in understanding with the outcome and the outputs of that test prognosis, but also whether patients have reached the point at which they need to be considered for transplantation. And we consider that alongside six-minute walk tests. One of the other really important tests that we do is the usual biochemistry because, of course, end organ function is a key determinant to prognosis and understanding timing for transplantation. So any evidence of end organ dysfunction, particularly kidney and uh, liver dysfunction, will be very helpful to understand. We often find that patients are iron deficient. Occasionally, we find unusual causes of heart failure. So we've picked up the odd case of hemochromatosis, for example, through our uh, testing program, uh, and then biomarkers. And NT-proBNP, which is our chosen biomarker, has really been instrumental in recent years in understanding the cohort of patients that we see. We better understand that those with a very low NT-proBNP, less than 750, would augur a very good prognosis and the chance of needing to go on to have some form of advanced heart failure therapy 
within a two to year, three year period would be really remarkably low. And whilst we can't ignore that patient and we know that they can progress and deteriorate in the future, we can be reasonably reassured that as a distant follow-up, re-referral back or an irregular follow-up in outpatient clinic can be a very useful way to manage those patients and reassure them of their better prognosis. Increasing tiers of BNP um, will also help us to understand a, a poor prognostic group. And when you get beyond two or two and a half thousand, then the NT pro BNP will tell us that actually this is a cohort that will often go on to need some sort form of in intervention within a relatively short time frame, within 12 months on the whole. And that way we can target our therapies much better, optimize whatever we can further. But really, if the other data also supports that BNP measurement to say that the prognosis is likely to be poor, then those are the patients typically we would then consider for listing for transplantation. Assuming a transplant has taken place, Clive, and readers can certainly uh, read the excellent review that your unit uh, produced recently in Heart about the different types of transplantation. But assuming transplantation has taken place successfully, what are the short and medium term complications that you guys have to look out for? So I think to take mortality first, or I should say survival, because ultimately this is a procedure which gives patients often with very poor survival an excellent chance of both a short, medium and long term improvement for their health as well as quality of life. If you take a typical patient operated today, the median survival is 12 years. If you look at a patient who uh, survives the first year where the risk of surgery is the highest, then the mortality is uh, lower. And so our median survival then is about 14 to 15 years. And that's really, really remarkable when you consider that most patients who we place on the transplant waiting list have a typical mortality of 50% within one or two years of uh, the point of listing for transplant. So there, and we also see very good long-term survival. In our cohort, we see about 25% of patients will reach 25 years after transplantation. We've had a, a, recently a number of patients who've reached 30 years from transplantation. And the, the, it is absolutely extraordinary. And we would see about 10% of patients get to that, uh, that point. So there's really uh, excellent long-term survival. Of course, that means that you know, half of our patients don't reach 12 years. And the typical time when we see risk is in the first year. In fact, really in the first month, the uh, survival over the whole UK cohort and indeed internationally would be around an 85% survival. Our survival at Royal Papworth tends to be uh, less than that, um, we better than that, I should say, because our long-term survival uh, in the one month would be at about 5 to 7% mortality, you know, 95% survival, and uh, one year would tend to be about 90% survival, whereas in the UK cohort, we normally look at about an 80% survival rate at one year. So it's that first month that's critical, and the key determinants are the state of the recipient and ensuring that the the medical therapy of that patient is optimized, that they haven't got irreversible end organ damage, that they don't have excessive pulmonary hypertension, all of which are key determinants for a successful outcome. So the state of the recipient is really key. And the more healthy they are um, with single organ failure and the rest of the body in good state without a degree of frailty um, is, is absolutely imperative. Then you've got the donor, and of course you have to make sure that the donor is going to work well. And 
I think if we look at the early problems that we see, what we would term primary graft dysfunction, that's the key determinant for good survival. So if you have a good donor and a good recipient, then the outcome will be expected to be better. And the problem is you're taking a heart, you're putting it on ice for three hours, sewing it back in, you're, you've got a cold ischemic time, you've got a warm ischemic time, and inevitably we're going to have a hit onto the function of the heart immediately on reanimation. And we term that primary graft dysfunction, whether it's the left side, whether it's the right ventricle, or more usually a combination of the two, that's when we can struggle. And so supporting the heart in the perioperative period, be it with inotropic support, with aortic balloon pump, or even temporary mechanical support, we tend to use ECMO quite often in that scenario, we have learned over the years to try to cope with suboptimal immediate performance of the heart in the hope that it will just gradually pick up and improve in the first few days after transplant. But it's that really critical period where it's close collaboration between the transplant cardiologists, the cardiac intensivists, and our surgical colleagues working very much in concert together to try and optimize the patient's health. And that can be a really absolutely critical period for us to get, get that right. And what would you say the future holds for, for heart transplantation, Clive? It's clearly a, a successful field, evolving all the time. Uh, where do you see the next exciting uh, developments coming from? Most people would want me to say perhaps that bad support, left ventricular-assisted devices will become a replacement for heart transplant. And that may be the case in the decades to come. But at least for the next 10 years, I would see that uh, heart transplantation remains the primary and excellent support for patients with severe and advanced heart failure. Whilst we can look forward to better devices in the future with fewer complications, without the need for uh, a wire to come through the skin in order to supply the implanted VAD with power, reducing risk of infection, reducing risk of stroke through finding a way of preventing thromboembolism that we find very commonly with these, with these devices, that those technologies will advance uh, and become perhaps uh, with time also less expensive, more minimally invasive in the approach that we have to implant these devices. So that is absolutely the future. But at the moment, there is no, no really good alternative to heart transplantation. Of course, we're limited by the number of donors. We're limited perhaps by still the range of immune suppression drugs that we have. So, and we're also limited to a degree in the available pool of patients that we see as transplant recipients. I, I think that the advent of CRT has changed the face of heart failure and that we see patients later. We see them uh, stabilize with our increasing range of medical therapies with, with Entresto, with Evabradine, and patients can be maintained to the better level of functioning with CRT as well, longer than ever before. But then when they reach their end-stage trajectory, they deteriorate very quickly. So I think we're seeing much, much more in the way of acute referrals of very, very sick patients. And the problem is then often it's, it's either too late or we don't have enough time to transplant. And often perhaps the right ventricle has deteriorated so that actually mechanical support becomes more difficult as well. So I think seeing more patients early referral, increasing the referrals of stable patients with heart failure to then determine from that cohort, which would be great to go on to transplant, would be a really great thing to do. 
So we've done a lot of work to try to increase the donation pool. Um, we have introduced a scout program in the UK where we go out to look at potential donors to see whether we can optimise the donor, perhaps one where the donor would be marginal, not always suitable. And with ideal optimization of the patient's hemodynamic status in the intensive care, render them actually a good potential uh, heart donor. We've gone uh, beyond that to look at a wide range of donors, going to see older donors than we would have considered before, including donors in the future who have diseases like hepatitis C, which is now a curable disease. And once the commissioning arrangements are in place to pay for post-transplant hepatitis C treatment, that we can take a wider pool of donors with hepatitis C. And then the biggest thing for us for increasing donors has been this program that we've started for donation after cardiac death. So, of course, most donors in the recent years have been brainstem death donors, where the brainstem death testing in the intensive care determines that the patient has legally died. The heart is still beating. It can be assessed to determine that the heart would be potentially a very good donor. And then that heart is taken and transplanted. The concept of DCD, or donation after uh, circulatory death, has emerged really in the last five to ten years. And the definition of death by DCD is that there's withdrawal of treatment, that then the heart will stop. And traditionally, these donors have not been used for heart transplantation. They have for the abdominal organs and more recently for lungs as well. And there's been a great concern that the DCD heart would not work well in human transplantation. But a team predominantly from here at Papworth have pioneered a way of assessing those hearts, of preserving them and bringing them back to Papworth for human transplantation, particularly using an ex vivo perfusion. So if you consider like the Langendorf that we used to use in medical school, but now there's a commercial machine that we use to perfuse blood, oxygenate with appropriate nutrients to keep the heart beating again at body temperature while it's transported back to Papworth. And through that process, we can assess the heart using various parameters, including lactate, for example, to determine that the heart would work well in our recipient. And we then proceed with the transplant as we would normally. Mm. So this has opened uh, an enormous number of potential donors in the UK that previously had not been suitable to consider heart transplantation. And so we've now completed 50 heart transplants using this new technique. And there are a number of other centres, uh, uh, Harefield, uh, uh, Manchester, who have already started a similar technique to, to us around the UK, and a lot of interest around the world. Sydney did the very first and have continued to do a, a great number of, uh, of DCD heart transplants also. And so uh, I hope that this technique and the work that my colleague Steve Large in particular at Papworth has pioneered over the last decade, now fruition to a great clinical program with 50 being the largest number of hearts that have been transplanted anywhere in the world using this new technique. So I think as different countries establish the ethical background to allow DCD transplantation to occur in their own environments, we'll see that the uptake is hopefully similar to ours in the UK with this huge potential unmet need for the number of donors through using DCD transplantation and then increasing the number of transplants done worldwide. And I think that's particularly 
going to be a great thing in Europe, where in the last 10 years or so, we've actually seen a decrease in the number of hearts uh, transplanted. Yet, of course, heart failure doesn't go away in the number of people waiting for transplantation. It goes up the number of people uh, dying on the waiting list for transplantation remains fairly static, but is significant uh, somewhere between 7 and 15%, depending on the country. And of course, that whole unmet need for patients with advanced heart failure who uh, may never be referred, but could be suitable for transplantation. So um, I, this has been really for us the uh, major, major uh, high impact innovation for the last last decade. Brilliant. Well, that's a fabulous overview, Clive. I will point readers to the comprehensive review written by uh, colleagues at your unit at Royal Papworth Hospital. And uh, it's been great to visit you today. Thank you very much, James.